For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Welcome to another episode of Epic Realms. I'm your host, Nick, and today with me is VP of Special Projects at Atlas Game and owner of Left Justified Studios and Prolific Games, board game designer, writer, and all kinds of other things. The list is a mile long. Jeff <laughs> Tidball, how you doing? I am good. Thank you for having me on. This is great. No problem. You're very much welcome. I, uh, from the very onset of, of doing this podcast and redoing it, I was... You, you know, I was, I got to have Jeff on because of, you know, your work with Atlas, Prolific Games, and I have, you know, little connections here and there with all of those, and you and I have met once or twice, probably not necessarily memorable, likely in passing or playtesting games or something like that, so it's, it's great to have you on. When you, when you first started getting into board games, how old were you? Were you just a kid, or was it not until you got older? I know I played D and D for the first time when I was in sixth grade. A uh, friend from upstairs in our apartment building brought down the red box. His name was Andy Silverman. He was in seventh grade, so he was a year older than I was. Uh, and I thought that that was absolutely the greatest thing that I had ever experienced. Um, and and kind of within the next year or two, had decided and started telling people that I was going to design games for a living when I grew up. So it was it was a very specific experience um, that led to really sort of obsessively doing RPG stuff and like just obsessively doing RPG stuff all the way through school, middle school, and high school, and into college and stuff. Nice. That how, led me want led me to want to do that for a living. How how did that work with you with school like were you good in school did you you know was it a interrupted and you're like oh i i could get this assignment done or i could go play D D with my friends sure no that's a great question i i did well in school um and did like i was in the high school national honor society and in i we didn't really have ap classes at the time so that was not a thing per se but in like honors english classes not less so in math math did not interest me uh, really very much at all. I actually dropped out of trigonometry at the semester break in my junior year of high school so I could take music theory instead. But it's not its not necessarily that I was like bombing in it or anything like that. It just did not have any interest for me at all. Uh, and I did not see how that, I didn't see how higher math pointed into game design. So I was kind of like, eh, and, and stopped doing it. The other thing that I seriously thought that I might do as a career was music. And so the music theory veering made a little bit of sense there. But by the time I got into college and started taking music theory classes, it kind of became clear to me that uh, I had not done nearly enough uh, keyboard playing or singing 
prior to that point and that getting caught up on those things was going to be difficult enough that I sort of abandoned a music major. Uh, I think that was maybe my second semester as a freshman or as an early sophomore. I don't remember. Um, I also, th this seems like a ridiculous choice to make, but looking ahead to well, like, so what is my, what is my life going to be like as a game designer down this path? Or what is my life going to look like as a musician down this other path? And I decided that being a musician would be too sad a career where I would make no money and like have to be in bars every night, you know, playing for beer money or whatever. Um, so, and, and, and I should say that game design has wound up being a good um, and rewarding and like relatively lucrative career. I'm, I don't, um, I certainly do not do better than I would putting the same skills to use in some like actual grown up profession, right? If I wrote the HR newsletter at the insurance company, I would almost certainly do better but um, it, it, it has hardly been a poverty wages job. What did you go to college for? What, what did, ended up being your master's, right? Uh, so I've got, an, I've got an, an undergraduate degree in English. Okay. Uh, and it's funny because I was going through some papers. My mom gave me a giant box of papers of that vintage. And my uh, college admission letter, you know, they scroll a note on the bottom because they actually want you to come there. And the, the, the note back on that was that they hoped my plan to form a role-playing game publisher went well. So I had apparently put that into my college application essays even that I sort of intended to do that. But there was no, uh, there was no formal course of study in game design anywhere. Right now there's, there's formal courses in that all the way around. I, I taught in one of them at Stout uh, uh, two semesters ago. Um, so I wound up getting an English degree because that seemed to me like it was the most relevant traditional degree that would point at game design. And it was completely predetermined where I would go to school because my mom worked at Hamlin University uh, in St. Paul here. So I, I you know, the, the financial incentive to go there was just completely overwhelming. So even if they had only offered music theory and underwater basket weaving, like I would have just chosen between those two and carried on because the value of a BA is the value of a BA. Right. Um, but I did, I did go back to grad school eventually. I worked at Atlas Games for five years uh, from like 96 to 2000. Um, but it looked to me at that time like World of Warcraft was going to destroy tabletop role-playing forever because why would anyone do that if a computer can do all of the boring stuff? And right, how, how terribly wrong was that idea? But right. at the time, yeah, yeah. Um, that looked like it was completely the case. So I desperately looked around the world for jobs where I could make things up instead of writing the HR newsletter at the insurance company. And, and right. so it looked like um, becoming a screenwriter would be the way to, to do that. So um, I managed to convince my wife that we should move to Los Angeles uh, and managed to get into USC uh, at the School of Cinema Television there. And so I got an MFA in screenwriting out of the deal okay. with that. Nice, nice. So you mentioned you, you spent some time at Alice game during those early years where you, you were still going to college when you were working there as well, or was that? Kind yes, of that was um, the real benefit of having spent all of that time in middle school and high school and early college, 
just getting deeply embedded in the local gaming community is that everybody who was in all of those clubs, like I, I didn't go to the University of Minnesota, but I went to the uh, role-playing special interest group club that met on campus. So everybody in all of these local communities knew that there was this kid running around who intended to become a game designer. And so when one or many of them became aware that Atlas Games was trying to hire somebody part-time to help do like PR related tasks, kind of at the beginning of the first CCG boom, I managed to, you know, kind of get pointed in the direction of John Nephew, who uh, owns Atlas Games, and managed to get an interview. And I think I, I successfully looked like an inexpensive hire <laughs> as a junior in college, uh, but so managed to get that job. So I worked uh, part time at Atlas as a junior, and then like it just transitioned more and more hours as we went there, and um, started working at Atlas full time pretty much upon graduation. Um, which which was great. That was a great way to have kind of a slow entry into that and build up some trust with those folks. I didn't start out doing creative work at Atlas, but by the time I had graduated, they had kind of uh, made up a creative job for me to do there. So that was a really wonderful way to enter. So I worked, I, I uh, my mom and my girlfriend at the time, wife now, convinced me that I should not drop out of college so that I could be full-time at Atlas sooner, right? Which in right. retrospect would have been a complete disaster. Right. But as far as I was concerned, I already had the job that I wanted to have forever. Why on earth would I carry on right. uh, getting a history minor and doing these obnoxious last couple of credits of the literature of wherever and whenever, or whatever right. it was that I still had to take in those last semester or two. Exactly. What, uh, how many different job titles have you had over there at Atlas? Um, or can you cover like what you did during those? I'm, so I, I started out like as a, as a PR assistant or something. I essentially sent emails to magazines trying to get them to cover uh, On the Edge, which was Atlas's collectible card game at the time. Right. So I, I might have had a series of, of job titles in that vein, a PR assistant or guy who carries things or I don't know. <laughs> uh, I managed to convince them to let me have the title, I think, uh, Director of Creative Development. Uh, when I graduated the, to kind of signify that I was moving over to creative stuff. Okay. And the, the company got very small at one point. So at one point it was just me and John Nephew working there. So, and like they did not care at all about which titles that they were handing out. So right. that was a very grandiose title for a 22 year old right. or whatever. But so I think that was probably the title that I went out at over there as well as director of creative development. Um, I did... Uh, I attempted to become a screenwriter basically for six years, including the time I was at graduate school um, and had moved back into doing gaming work sort of to pay the bills while I continued to write screenplays as well. So I worked at Atlas for uh, maybe two or so years at the end of that six year period. And I honestly don't remember what my title might have been at that time. That is a, I don't even know if my resume even records such a but thing. But you did, but you did. But, half the stuff basically since there were just two of you uh well so by that time there were more atlas employees oh, okay. again um john had gotten married to michelle nephew and the two of them co-own the business now she's still she is now atlas's i think chief creative officer so she she and john were working together in the business and i think that there were 
that there was another RPG developer and maybe a sales and marketing person. So it was probably okay. back up to four or five folks around then. And I was kind of doing random things. One of the things I remember doing was laying out the entire print catalog. Um, I designed and developed pieces of eight around that time. Um, and I'm certain that I laid out a bunch of Ars Magica books around that time. Uh, probably David Chart developed all those. So, so David Chart, uh, David Chart did a phenomenal job on Ars Magica Fifth Edition. He kind of picked up all of the things that I did not necessarily do very well when I was the developer on the Fourth Edition. Um, understandably, right? I'm a 22 year old, uh, right. ostensibly managing like freelance writers and developers right. in an entire RPG line at the time, but. So anyway, he was working at Atlas, although as a freelancer, he lives in Japan with his family. And so it, at that point in time, I think it would have been extremely difficult to do the kind of like real-time coordination necessary to work that many time zones apart. Now, I think that that is not, I don't know that that's common now, but for sure people do that now, right. I would think. And you've done like work for other companies, not just Atlas as well, too, right? Like a Fantasy Flight, and I, I mean, I don't, yeah. know, I don't know the entire list. Do you can you can you shout off a couple of shout out a couple of names? Yeah, so I worked at uh, so right out of film school, I got a job at Gold Circle Films, which is not a game company, but they did my big fat Greek wedding. Mm -hmm. I carried coffee around there and very nearly spilled Diet Coke on Martin Short. Those are my claims <laughs> to fame at Gold That's Circle right. Films. You, you, you um, get bonus points for that. Just getting to hang out with Martin Short. That's my book. right. Um, I went to Decipher from there. Uh, so I was the Lord of the Rings role-playing game line developer. That was a, a phenomenally exciting time to be the line developer on that because that was when the second and third movies were coming out. Right. Fellowship had already come out, but um, I, I was developing um, expansions for that game uh, during kind of the Two Towers and the Return of the King period. So that was amazing. They uh, shut that development studio down so I was out of work for five or six months before I found a job working at a mobile game developer that was a startup it was called Tomo Software that was uh, educational and interesting all of the folks that I worked with there were extremely great people um, and there were some structural things there that were a challenge like they had been developing their game for five or six months before they hired their first game designer um, so we kind of inherited a game that was very challenging to get right. And they also had um, really, if they had uh, founded that company five years later, I think it could have been a huge success. It, they, they were basically pointed in the direction that Farmville eventually went. Oh, wow. okay. But if you imagine attempting to develop a Farmville on the flip phones of 2004, wow. you know, like, that that's just so they had I think they had the right model of engagement on their minds but that that especially given uh, that it was previous to social media and it was still when the phone carriers had absolute control over what went on your phone so if you wanted to get people to play your game you had to go through Sprint and AT&T you couldn't yeah. like put it on an app store and try to convince people to play it so I did that for about a year. That was that was very interesting. Met some phenomenal people there. And then it was after that that I went back to Atlas, did another two years or so. Um, our son was about one at that point, and we were looking forward to the horror of putting a child into public school in Los Angeles. <laughs> so we, we moved back to Minnesota. My wife and I are both from around here and both had extremely good 
uh, like public school experiences here. So that was when I, when I started working at Fantasy Flight. I came back and uh, had been talking to those folks about what they were building. So I don't, there were uh, maybe 35 or so employees at Fantasy Flight at the time. I don't know if you've been in the Fantasy Flight Game Center over in Roseville. If you uh, walk in the front door and kind of face the, the food counter, to the left of that is uh, creamers and condiments and so on. That is right where my desk was, oh, okay. is where the ketchup is now okay. in the Fantasy Flight Game Center. Yes, I, I do know it. I've been in there quite a bit. Uh, uh, for those that are listening and don't necessarily know, that's, you know, they've got the, the game company has their own basically public hangout area and like little cafe for people to come and play games or paint miniatures or you know, do whatever they want. And they have like an extra hall area that they can open up if they want to have their own like little mini conventions as well. So it's a really cool, really cool place in Roseville, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, it's really neat. And it it's was really originally neat. offices before they moved the thing and then they expanded it to that. So yeah, so yep. yeah. Awesome. So, you know, you talked about Ars Magica. You've worked on quite a few role-playing games, including Ars Magica, which is kind of atlas's big rpg i know uh did you have a hand on in unknown armies as well no not really i the the no is the short answer no. to that like i think i laid out one of the books when that first came over but that was kind of acquired in its whole state when um who i think it was archon was the company that originally yeah. worked with john tynes and greg stoltzy on that and they went out of business um, and so those two just kind of brought it over to Atlas Wholesale and published the, the first and second editions of that. Well, in the third now, yep. I was kind of the maybe executive producer on the third edition because okay. um, I managed the, the uh, Cam Banks, who was the developer on that at the time. So I was involved in the, in the Kickstarter and, you know, like would receive a manuscript and look it over, or they would ask me what I thought about the graphics or whatever, and would give my opinion, but I didn't do any, and I didn't do any creative heavy lifting on that. What kind of work all. do you do? Do you do more of the, obviously you mentioned you did editing. Did you, have you done pretty much all of the different things when it comes to putting out a, a role-playing book? You know, whether you're editing I, or designing or, you know, coming up with the rules, stuff like that. Probably, uh, probably every single thing with the perhaps exception of sitting down with a completely empty word processor document and designing an entire thing from scratch. I think probably, I can't think of any instances where I have done that. I may be like overlooking some project that never escaped my hard drive or something right. like that. Right. Um, but, but in terms of like editing and proofreading and developing and uh, creating rules, uh, finding people to write stuff, writing specifications for what are they going to write. Now, even things like development tasks, like designing what are the what are the mechanics for this expansion going to be like. I'm not going to write the thing, but here is a freelance writer. Here is how the mechanics are going to work, so that you don't have to work all of that stuff out. Um, laying it all out. I taught myself Quark Express basically, so that I would be able to kind of control that manuscript all the way through to presentation and uh, art direction and anything that I know about the mechanical process of printing kind of learned out of necessity. Right. 
when you go in from order one, to make that happen when you go from one game to another is there carryover like when you're like you know you've got rs magica and you're like well i'm gonna go work on dragon age now well these things worked really well in this one system do you is there carryover or do you like start over or is it based on you know what a company might want or what somebody else might envision yeah that's a that's a really interesting question and i don't think that i uh understood soon enough so this is kind of a sideways answer to that question the most yeah. important thing i learned um as the line developer of Ars Magica, I only learned in retrospect and learned how extremely important it was to be running the game that I was working on uh, and running it every week and having a continuing visceral experience of what is it like to be a player and game master of this game on an ongoing basis. Because you can, so the Ars Magica fourth edition surely would have been better if I had been doing that every single week of developing the entire thing. Um, and I, I honestly say, I can't remember what I was playing at the time. And probably we were playing some Ars Magica in the groups that I were in, but I remember the groups that I were in. We bounced around a lot. I played a ton of Shadowrun in that time. Um, but, but anyway, a lot of those um, skills, I think, do transfer um, and are relevant from game to game to game. I think the ones that are most relevant are just your creative habits and your uh, kind of mechanical and editorial facility with writing. So like to have the habit of being able to sit in your chair and draft 1500 words before you get up and ensure that they are all going to be relatively coherent English that is only going to take one more pass. Right. I think um, counter to that, it is very easy to delude yourself into thinking that all systems are more or less the same and that it doesn't matter if you learn Dragon Age particularly well. If you've been developing Ars Magica for five years, then who really cares? Dragon Age is that with stats that are named different things. And I think that that is not true. And I think that it's very easy, but it's very easy for a developer or writer to delude themselves into thinking that that is true. Okay. I think that the very best role-playing games uh, have been produced by people who are who are really immersed in that game uh, and have done the done the intellectual work on it to really understand it back and front um, and not and not because what you're tempted to do is fall back to hand-waving nonsense um, that is like pretty close and that will still be enjoyable to read and that maybe works in the marketplace because lots of people only buy those books to read them instead of to play them at the table. But I think my guess is that many role players who play lots of systems will have had the experience where you sit down to play a game and try to really use some supplement. And it kind of like every time you try to use a given thing, it like crumbles away a little bit or it doesn't make any sense or it, it really should have been done a different way. And a lot of the times I suspect that that arises because a writer sort of faked it. Makes and I'll say like, and, and that, that uh, it's rough not to fake it because of how poorly those gigs tend to pay. Like you can't, so a, a movie director can for sure immerse themselves in a project for four years and still make a lot of money. Right. It, right. at four cents a word or whatever um 
you can basically afford the amount of time that it takes you to write it as fast as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even if the project would benefit from you having um, run 12 sessions of it, you know, at four hours per uh, setting aside your um, prep time and things like that. So it's, it's really understandable, understandable to me why it happens. Um, but at the same time, I think you can tell the difference. Yeah, if yeah. you really look at it closely. Definitely, definitely. Do you do you find yourself, uh, you know, aside from creating games, uh, do you do you prefer to be a GM or a player? Um, I <laughs> these days I think I prefer to be a player, but that's because I don't uh, like I spend the whole day working on games, and I don't know that I and I haven't run a game probably in years at this point, and that is probably partially due to the fact that I just don't want to like invest the time in that as ostensible fun yeah so right. these days i would much rather play a thing although i'm pretty attracted to um the like gm list style indie games okay right one of the i still haven't had a chance to play uh the new fiasco yet but that's the kind of thing that that i find myself enjoying more and more nice nice are there any other i, I mean are there we, we've talked about Dragon Age and Lord of the Rings and uh, somebody on Twitter had mentioned the Munchkin Die 20 uh, role play <laughs> system. Tell us a little bit about that. Just to, just to ease the, just to ease the people listening that might be interested in Munchkin Die 20. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to remember the genesis of this project. I, I, I think that John Kavalik might have reached out to say, you know, we are thinking about doing a, parody adventure inside this Munchkin D20 book. Would you want to write that? And I think my response was probably something like, hell yes, I would like to write that. <laughs> um, and so that way, like it was not very long. I'm sure maybe you, this can be found on eBay at this point. I think there might even have been three. There might even been a player's book and a GM's book and a, and a screen. Um, so maybe the thing that I wrote is inside the screen. I think I think that's where I, I saw say, credit to your name was on the screen, but I didn't know if you did other stuff as well. I didn't do anything else on that screen. Now, I want to <laughs> I want to say that that adventure was called the Village of Omelet. Uh, and and I, I remember that being fun to write because that's an example of something where like the I was just talking about like sort of doing your research but there's no research to do in a munchkin d20 adventure right? you're not going <laughs> to somehow like you're not going to elevate that game by taking it seriously that's not going right. to work so that was essentially like writing a, a sitcom script in the form of a D&D adventure uh which was great yeah hilarious because you know you got to be a creative gm for a game like like a munchkin role-playing game where the goal is well it's, it's munchkin so i mean you've got you should sure. be creative and it should be creative and entertaining so i mean it, it's uh it's just a fun it's it, like it's not even clear to me that such a game is meant to be played <laughs> i mean i'm sure people must have done it but i would like it would be interesting to know as they sat around in austin trying to figure out how to publish Munchkin D20, like if in their heart of hearts, they believed that people would play it, or if they were like, we are essentially putting together the mad magazine of D20. It right. will be full of gags and funny illustrations and John Kavalik will make them and everyone loves him and he is hilarious. Like it is mad magazine. 
for yeah. gamers. Yeah, that's hilarious. That would be more honest, is my guess. What is the difference between putting together an RPG and like a board game? For you know, because most people don't design either. You've done both. What 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 would you say are some of the core key differences when you got to sit down and, and put together a, a role playing game or a board game? Um, I feel like uh, putting together a board or card game is easier. Um, one of the reasons for that is that it is much more simple to get your head around the totality of the play experience. In a role playing game, that's that's nearly impossible. Um, you know, without spending a year playing it, because in addition to the fact that an individual session takes a very long time, like I don't know that I have a lot of board games that take four hours to play, right. but that's kind of your entry level time commitment for an RPG. But not only is it that single session thing, a, an RPG traditionally has a campaign structure where you can play five or 20 or 100 sessions of it. Um, and like, how do you meaningfully play test that? right that's that's a, a, a real struggle and so um I, yeah i just find it uh easier from that standpoint to create a border card game but and then iterate on it right because it's clear that those games get better as you uh play them and have the experience and think about it and then revise it and then just do that over and over but um i mean are you gonna design um Dungeons and Dragons that way? Are you really going to play five campaigns? Like right. 12 years later, you're going to have your second iteration of the manuscript. That's just right. not going to work. Um, so maybe that's one of the reasons why it's so necessary to just bring your experience from previous games into this one. Yeah. Um, but, but so by that same token, I will say that one of the most rewarding things that I have ever created uh, perhaps the most rewarding thing that I've ever created uh, is the Eternal Lies campaign for Trail of Cthulhu, which Will Heinmarch and I co-wrote. Um, and I have, in addition to the, uh, so we've, I've play tested that from end to end as I wrote it. So I tested all of the segments of that that I wrote. I ran all of the segments that Will wrote. So I had played it once in the development process and I have run that entire campaign twice since then, like since it was published just for uh, just because there were groups of people who were interested in playing it, I was excited to run it again. And so that may be something where I may be starting to approach like the iterative knowledge of it, that it would not be a ridiculous thing, like to create a new version of it now. So the even more interesting thing than that though, is uh, I now work at Atlas with Justin Alexander. Uh, he, he does the Alexandrian um, uh, like he does, I think he's streaming now, I guess. I know that mostly from his blog uh, and his social media stuff. But so he's the RPG producer at Atlas Games. So he works on Feng Shui and he's been working on Magical Kitties stuff and Unknown Armies things. Anyway, so he, the first time I uh, became aware of what he was doing over at the Alexandrian was because he had uh, written something like 35,000 additional words for Eternal Lies. He had invented an entirely new locale for the campaign that was a New England locale because we it, it takes place all around the world. I think that there are six um, locales that we put in. He had invented a completely new one and furthermore written another 10,000 words explaining how we had messed up a particular element 
of the overall mystery and then fixed it also. <laughs> so, um, and that's anybody who's thinking about running Eternal Lies or looking at it should absolutely track down his material because if Pelgrane ever decides that they are interested in um, like doing a new edition of that, I don't know what the, the economics of that look like, whether right. that would be sensible or not. But um, the material that he put together should absolutely like be considered to become an official part of that, it, which, which again kind of demonstrates that you can run the entire thing and take it all very seriously and still have someone else who is thoughtful and is also playing it um, improve it in that way right. and take it very seriously. We mentioned Pieces of Eight earlier, uh, but that was like one of your first early, early games, yes? Yeah, yeah. Every time um, I see it, I think, hey, that's a pirate game. I've got to try that game every single time. And I'm a big fan of pirate, piratey stuff. And every time I go into the local shop, I look around and I'm like, let's see what kind of piratey games are out there now that might be interesting. And every time I see it, it's like, oh, I should really get that game. I should really try it out. So tell us a little bit about it. Uh, so the genesis of Pieces of Eight was actually while I was working at the mobile software place, I had a uh, an office mate who was the office manager. She had been at Disneyland all weekend and had been standing in line for some ride or another. And the people who were standing in line next to her had been playing some card game. And the key thing, obviously, of a card game that you can play in line at Disneyland is that you have to be able to hold all this stuff, right? You can't have a deck that sits on the table. You can't have a discard pile. So I don't, I don't think that she knew or she never told to me what the nature of this specific game was. But that was the genesis of the idea of Pieces of Eight, which was to create a game where the components would always and only either be in your hands or in your pockets. Um, the fact, I can't remember when it came to be part of the design that it was going to be minted metal coins, whether that was part of the pirate conceit or whether it was probably someone pitched at some point that you should actually also be able to take it on the log ride and it would not be destroyed or like, <laughs> I don't even know. Right. But that's the genesis of the idea is to invent a game where you uh, either hold or keep all the components in your pocket at all times. Nice. So the, the, the way the game works is uh, you, your, your collection of coins represents a pirate ship. You hold most of them in one of your hands in a stack. So the front coin is the fore of your ship and the back coin is the aft of your ship. The order that they are placed in matters. Uh, you have a coin that represents your captain somewhere in the middle and your captain is a different uh, shade of metal, I think that the captain is gold instead of the other ones are all bronze or something like that. But the, the goal, if you and I are playing, your goal is to kill my captain. Okay. So you always know how close is he to the front or back of my ship. And then I'm allowed to hold one coin in my other hand. That is my crow's nest. And so the three coins that I can use at any given time are those three, the, the one in my the hand over here or the four coin or the aft coin. As my coins die, they go into my pocket. So I've sort of got a graveyard and sometimes you can get coins back from your pocket. Okay. Uh, but that's the premise of the game. So every, every coin has a slightly different ability. Um, you kind of have to remember what they are. There's not really any, any ability to like put rules on those coins very much. Gotcha. Um, so that's that was that was what Pieces of Eight was, and uh, I managed to convince John and Michelle to publish it. I think um, it was it was really well regarded. Uh, I think from a design standpoint, 
and not a commercial success at all. And I don't know what it would look like if you released it today, because part of the reason I think that it was not a commercial success was because of how expensive it was. We wound up doing a release model where each, each box that you bought was enough for one player to play. So you really had to buy two of those before you could even have a two-player game. Right. Um, and the, the economics of that, like that was just how it was. They were that expensive. Those were all minted in Rhode Island. Uh, that was before anyone was really doing any extensive um, anyone in the hobby game space anyway was doing much extensive uh, production in China or anywhere else. Right. So uh, I don't know if it would be possible to do a better job with that now in terms of its commercial success, but it was it was really uh, rewarding and gratifying how well it was received by by other designers and as, as far as awards and things like that went. Well, I'm being unique, something that's different than everything else. Yeah, yeah, I think that that was probably why that recognition came was due, due to how unique it was. So going from something that's very unique to something that, you know, you see quite a bit of is card games. You had a hand in the Warcraft, World of Warcraft card game, yes? Uh, not the card game. I worked on a little bit on the board game, I The think. board game, that's what I meant, sorry. Or which, well, so I mean, man, I, I have it. I will be honest with you that there are a lot of those games that I worked on while I was at Fantasy Flight mm -hmm. where I only like touched a little bit of it. So I edited a lot of rule books there. So I, I almost certainly did the rule books for both of those okay. as, a, as an editor and maybe worked on laying them out. Um, it's kind of funny, Warcraft having been the thing that drove me to leave the industry right, that's forever. That's why I was going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> and then come back and wind up working on it. Yeah. I, I still, to this day, have never played the computer game for even five minutes. I, I'm an old school. I'm an old school EverQuest person from the original uh -huh. EverQuest days. And a lot of people, when they, you know, all the stuff that happened with EverQuest, a lot of people jump ship to World of Warcraft. And I went over. I was like, this just isn't the same. It's just not the same to me. And so I played a little bit, but not enough to, you know. I think I got. I mean, I maxed out a character, but I didn't go deep into the thing. And obviously, now it's what twenty years later, and people are still playing it. So. Right. So you've also worked on things that are not necessarily board games, not necessarily RPGs. Obviously, we talked a little bit about working for a, a video game software company. Uh, and again, on Twitter, somebody mentioned the, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Grave Strike or is it Grav Strike? Because I see there's no. Oh, it's Grav Strike. It is Grav. Okay, I had it right. It's Grav Strike. Yeah, you did. Um, that is, man, that, that project has been kicking around in one form or another, maybe for 10 or 12 years. I swear that that game is going to come out someday. Um, but the right, the right configuration of that has not yet come together. So this grab strike arises, um, because of how much I loved car wars mm -hmm. as a high school and college student. That was my very, very favorite game. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the local uh, American Auto Duel Association chapter here in the Twin Cities in Minnesota was one of the two or three most active in the entire world. So uh, Spark, the St. Paul area road nights was my local group. We played Car Wars all the time. Uh, and the things that I loved about Car Wars were, or the thing that I loved about Car Wars was kind of twofold. Car Wars is a game where the game play is very important, like your tactics in the game. How fast am I going to go? Am I going to target this player or that player? Um, which part of the arena am I going to go to? All of that is 
extremely important in whether you win a game of Car Wars or not. But aside from that, uh, it is also dramatically important how you build that car in the first place. I don't know if you've played very much Car Wars or any Car a Wars at all. A little bit, years ago. But Car Wars is a game where you have uh, extremely fine control over how that car is made up. I had a, a dedicated piece of software that someone had made at the time. And so you can do things like your, your machine gun, let's say you mount a machine gun in your car and it's got 20 rounds that it that its capacity can hold. Uh, the rules of Car Wars specify how much cost and weight each one of those rounds takes up. So at the high levels of optimizing car wars, people would do stuff like put a machine gun in their car, but only put 12 of 20 rounds in it because you could save X dollars and Y pounds and use them for something else. Because a game of car wars never goes longer than 12 turns. It just doesn't happen. Right. And so why would you, you know, you could buy a, another two points of armor for that wasted last eight rounds of, anyway. So it was almost this, entirely additional game that you could play with the car wars stuff that then meshed with the actual car wars game and i just i i loved it i loved it so much so um but then fast forward to modern board games that that is just not something that would work today a game of car wars takes forever to play uh and it's very carved up a a one second of real time in a car wars game is divided up into 10 phases so you're working with it it, it would not fly today right, right. i mean the the irony of that is that i just last week received my car wars sixth edition kickstarter pledge but the fact <laughs> that original the fact that original car wars would not work today is almost demonstrated by this car wars sixth edition package that i got because they essentially set the entire rules on fire and reinvented the entire game for what what should it look like in the modern day right i'm extremely excited to play it um because it's got all of the like miniatures and punch board and cards and things like that that you would expect it to have today but when i was first thinking about grab strike um you know that was 10 years before they had even kickstarted this thing um so the the goal was to recreate what i loved about car wars in a modern game and so or a modern style game so it's a hover tank combat game um, it is in the Car Wars style, a sort of miniatures game where you control exactly one thing, as opposed to like even even like as close as you get to that in miniatures is maybe a game like Battletech, where you probably control four miniatures at a time. But but Grav Strike is all about the one hover tank that you control. Okay. And then the obvious place that it seemed to me to get that spreadsheet car creation feel was to use a sort of a living card game model, right? Because that became extremely common to spend time sitting around and building decks for Magic the Gathering right, or whatever right. since, since Car Wars had been popular. So Grab Strike is a one miniature arena combat game with grab tanks where the mechanical underpinning of your tank is a deck of 43 cards that you have assembled you know according to different rules yeah. but you use that for everything so you use the cards and some some cards have special abilities so you use them to do a very uh, special and specific thing but the cards all also have resources that they give you that you need in play so they have resources that let you maneuver or resources that let you shoot or resources that let you protect so you can spend any given card so like if i'm going to shoot you i may calculate and discover that i need five 
uh, targeting icons to make that happen. So I just search through my hand of cards and come up with that many and discard them and then the shot lands. Right. So those, those cards uh, replace everything that Car Wars uses dice for, but then they also let special abilities come along. And the fact that you can kind of do this preview mode of play by sort of constructing a deck is is the part about car wars that i really loved so that that game design started in i, I actually started designing that game in maybe 2012 so it's been going for a while um and it, it, other jobs have kind of come and gone a, a partner in that business has come and gone it's getting closer. I think that the, the game, I think, is nearly done and has been for four or five years. But there's a lot of expense, even in kickstarting a game like that. It's yeah. got to have models, and the models have got to be great. Nobody wants to buy a miniatures game that has even middle quality right. um, models. There's a lot of CCG-style art to commission just to even present a credible Kickstarter. So that's been kicking around for a long time. There are lots of people who have played it with me at conventions or have talked to me about it, and, and people like it. It's one of the games that people ask me about. When is that coming? Like you saw, right. there's yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scott's on Twitter um, hassling me from time to time about when it's going to come up, which is great, which is great, which is one of the reasons I don't just like put it down forever and move on with other stuff. Right. It's just a really big project. And I, um, I, I must have it be excellent, which is maybe part of the reason that it's been kicking around so long. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, you mentioned about, you know, the concept of what you need for a Kickstarter, but recently you did a Kickstarter for Bander Album, which is also kind of not really board game, not really card game, not really right. RPG. And uh, and I, I love the concept of it because you can do it pretty much anywhere and over cross distances from you know the way it looks. And that's, that's fun if you want to tell us a little bit about that game. Yeah, so uh, Bander Album is a social game that uh, takes advantage of the following fact about the English language. Uh, in the English language, any given word or phrase is either the name of a band or is the name of an album. Um, and there is a single and correct answer to the question of, when he, of whether any given word or phrase is a band or an album. And so uh, Ken Height was the person who sort of exposed this fact to me at, at a Gen Con SoCal back when those were still being put on. So that tells you how long that that has been going on. So we, the Bander album was the first Kickstarter that I did. That was maybe six years or so ago. So the one that I just ran was for a Bander album remix. So we built a new coin for that, uh, that a Spanish artist named Cisco Garrido designed, um, did a new set of rules. I mean, the game is the same, but part of the, it's, it's funny, it almost goes back to the Munchkin D20 <laughs> question where, the rules are uh, like an artifact related to gameplay. They're almost a sitcom script that illuminates a method of gameplay as opposed to an actual game. So like that, I, I bring that up to answer the question of how is it possible to write a new rule book for the same game, <laughs> which is essentially what this remix campaign okay. did. So, um, so it's, it's also returning back to the whole coin question, the, the component of gameplay and Bander album is a coin. So the way that, that the game works essentially is every player has a coin um, by tradition at the moment, they all take the shape of a guitar pick, but it's about 39 millimeters tall. This is the one of the prototypes 
for the uh, current remix edition. I don't know if I can get it to focus on that or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks cool. And people, people who are listening uh, to the podcast can probably go on Kickstarter. Oh, find the old, that's right. Find so the that's, old uh, thing and, and look it up and see what Fan side first. That's the album side. So anyway, um, when somebody it. calls the question about a given word or phrase, um, then they say band or album. So everybody has one of those coins. They, they put it face down on the surface and then secretly or simultaneously, everybody reveals whether they think it is a band or an album. Okay. And the point of that is to identify which players are wrong. The players that are wrong are obviously the ones who are in the minority, but the conceit of the game is not that, not that we voted. It is that the truth was revealed <laughs> by the action of the players. And so like then what happens depends sort of on the mode that you were playing, right? If you're playing the drinking game, then everybody who was wrong have to drink. Or if you're playing the extended drinking game, everybody who was wrong has to uh, throw a token of theirs into the middle. And then whenever anybody accumulates three tokens in the middle, they have to buy the next round. You can also play this on Twitter. Um, the remix rules that we are that are in production right now, they were kickstarted a couple months ago. So those are uh, just at the tail end of production right now. There is a legacy version of Bander album where the players who are wrong must drill a hole in their coin oh, to wow. symbolize their shame. Oh man! So it's it's. And my wife uh, just did, did inform me. My wife just did inform me that we do have the first edition of Bander. Yes, nice. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I got one of those floating around here too. Um, nice. Well, that's uh, kudos to her and to you. Then that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, it's there. I don't know that. Um, I, at one point, I ran a spreadsheet to calculate like how much money I had made on that first campaign, and it wound up being something like $4.13 an hour over the time that I had put into that. So obviously, doing a second campaign of that makes no financial sense whatsoever. <laughs> but it's good um, for the soul, right? It, it It is good for the soul. I find the entire concept hilarious. Um, I love the idea of a game that you can always play in conversation about other things um and, and like more and more that is what i want most out of a game is to sort of facilitate a social experience rather than for me to um to for me to like force time into the schedule of all the other stuff like i don't need to clear a saturday to play twilight imperium right <laughs> you, you know what i mean yeah yeah i get that when you uh we were talking about all these things and we mentioned earlier prolific games and i want to get into that uh while we yeah. still have some time because to me like i those that are listening that don't know i know john and bill uh i actually did social media for them for about a year i've helped them you know they've when they did their their flapjacks and sasquatches cards tournaments their their bacon belt championship you know helped you know immensely i've played in all of those and so uh, I, I actually think that i have a pirate character in one of their games that's a pick that's me as my renaissance festival per persona character in one of their games so it's just yeah so I, I have i have a little bit of a connection to it and when i found out that you had purchased the game for it, i was like is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? And they're like, no, no, we have time to spend with our kids now. <laughs> this is a good thing. Um, <laughs> so, and I'd like to see, you know, I, I, I'd like to hear your point of view. How did this go down? How did this happen? Yeah, um, this has been a, a really exciting development and thing to work on. Um, I had, uh, obviously I've been at a lot of different companies 
Um, and I have really loved, I've, I've worked at Atlas Games maybe for 15 or 16 years if you string all of that stuff together now. So none of this should be interpreted to be like any kind of a slam on the fine folks over at Atlas who really and truly are uh, perhaps the very best people to work with and for in all of gaming. But even so, I had gotten to the point where I was kind of ready to not have a boss anymore and to just kind of work on uh, whatever I wanted, but not on a project by project basis, because that had sort of been something I could do for a really long time is to just to take projects or not kind of based on whether I wanted to do them, but really to build a publishing catalog without anyone else telling me how I had to do it. Okay. Now, um, that's got to be counterbalanced by the fact that starting a small business in America is very nearly the stupidest thing you can do um, if you want to, like from a financial standpoint or even from a frustration standpoint, because they just like they just all fail. Restaurants all fail, and I don't know flower delivery services. Like the 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 likelihood that any given small business will succeed is very very small. And I think that that is especially true in in like creative businesses like this, just A, because it's hard, but B, because I guess B is also because it's hard. I just like statistics <laughs> tell us that that is very difficult to do. And my experience sort of bears that out, right. just looking around for the last 30 years and seeing how many companies don't make it for a long time. So as I'm weighing those two factors in my mind, I, I read a book that is about the process of sort of being an acquisition entrepreneur um, and sort of increasing your chances of succeeding at your small business by finding one that has already succeeded and buying it. So like you're, you're over the hump at least. Right. So that was a um, kind of a strategy that I had decided I wanted to follow. And so the, the last Gamma trade show before the pandemic, I had started talking to people, just putting out feelers and asking, do you know of a, some people that want to get out from under their company? Do, uh, are you a person that started, that's hearing about that? Are you a person that wants to sell your company? I just started telling people that I was looking to buy an existing publisher and uh, evaluated a couple opportunities over the next year or so uh, and found out randomly um, from Bill, I think, that they were looking to, I don't think they had heard that I was looking to buy a, a company, but I think that they were looking to kind of return to their regular family lives and their non-gaming careers. Right. And I, they, were, they were trying to reach out to Atlas and they knew that I worked there. So I, I like managed to sort of get a hold of that communication uh, by being the man in the middle between who they were actually trying to get to. And I don't know if that was, so, so it's not like I then kept it secret from Atlas or anything like that, but it was yeah. just, I was looking for an opportunity like that. Bill and John were looking to stop putting all of this time and effort into it. And so the, the short version of the story is that that just sort of worked out. Right. Um, uh, we we talked about it for a long time. I did a great deal of Excel delving into their like historical sales, and we we actually came like really quickly to a to a, a consensus on kind of what we thought it was worth and how it ought to go down. Um, I got some really good help from 
um, from advisors and things like that. So um, it kind of once we had decided to do it, it, it really, I mean, like all the best business deals, I guess, um, everybody is getting the very best version of what they want. And that really seems like, I mean, you have Bill and John on later and ask them whether you think that's correct or not, but um, it's been a really great opportunity for me. I um, have really come to an appreciation for uh, for flapjacks and sasquatches. Like before I thought it was fine, but right. this is a game that is really, really beloved by a ton of people the thing that kind of really captured my attention was something that I think John dropped into an email when we were first going around. It's just a screenshot of what the Amazon aggregate reviews of Flapjacks and Sasquatches look like over 10 or 11 or 12 years since it came out. At the time, it was at a 4.8 out of all of those hundreds of reviews. Um, and I don't know that like Flapjacks and Sasquatches is not a game that the board game geek community would elevate up to be there, like to put alongside terraforming Mars and whatever else it right, is that right. they love at Board Game Geek this week. But I mean, that that is almost I don't have anything against that style of gamer, but I would I would rather appeal to a more broad based. Right. Um, families adjacent board game community than to uh than to release a gloomhaven not that it would not be phenomenal to release a gloomhaven and then wallow around in my giant piles of money or whatever 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 <laughs> the the point is that flapjacks and sasquatches is extremely beloved by the people who love it and i just right. think that that is so great it's got a call um, and i basically yeah, yeah. I mean, except uh, yes, but they're not cultists. That's the thing that's really interesting. That's their other it's, game. That's like, their other game. <laughs> <laughs> it is their other game. But like it's it's emails from people who live in rural Minnesota who say things about how they play flapjacks and sasquatches every week with their cousins or their grandparents or their uncles and aunts. And that furthermore, there's cousins and uncles and aunts go in and buy the game and they buy it on Amazon or they buy it at their local game stores. Like the gamers den in Cambridge, Minnesota will be selling huge amounts of flapjacks and Sasquatches until the end of time, because it's just embedded in that community. Now, like Cambridge has got, I don't know, 20,000 people living in it. Maybe there's that many. I don't, so this is not like a huge metro area right. where it's a law of large numbers kind of thing. So I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's great. It's what, been great. What games are you planning on? Are you planning on keeping most of the games? What games are you guys planning on keeping from the, the library? And are you going to try and expand or redo any games? Um, so one of the things that we're working on right now, uh, Jay Little and I are designing a Flapjacks and Sasquatches dice game that will, I, it's not totally clear to me yet. I think that that will probably kickstart next year. It's possible okay. like that if the Kickstarter calendar gets super full, we'll just release it. Okay. Um, that is one that we will be play testing very soon. Um, this is an example of the enthusiasm of the Flapjacks and Sasquatches community as I put in one of the prolific newsletters that we were working on this game and looking for some play testers. And when last I checked the spreadsheet, there were like 50, literally more than 50 groups who had signed up to play test this dice game. So that's, it's phenomenal. So that's going to come out. Um, 
we are I, I, like none of the games in the prolific catalog are going to be put into a bin or anything like that. I don't know that Occultists and Cthulhu gets reprinted. Like there's probably right. many, many years of stock of that. Yeah. Um, I could see reprinting Witch Slapped. Yeah. I, I think uh, I think that's a really fun guy. I backed that Kickstarter. We played it at the time. It's my favorite uh, I think it's got <laughs> right on. Nice. Very nice. I think I like the Sasquatch Coffee one a little bit better, but they're both very strong entries yes, into the yes. into the gamer mug genre. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's kind of what I'm keeping it all in print, continuing to sell it all. They're now kind of back out into distribution. A little bit of that supply had uh, had become atrophied, I guess. Um, so a lot of my focus for the last couple of months has been on uh, just distribution and sales, making sure that retailers were reacquainted with that line, making sure that it is back out into distribution, um, rebuilding the website so that it was easier for people to buy that stuff, um, getting control of those Amazon sales back um, so, that the, uh, so that those games were sold closer to their MSRP than they had been. I think that that is good for the health of the retail channel broadly. Um, but there's 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 developments. Uh, the the do we we didn't talk about kill the unicorns Not yet? yet. I was kill gonna go unicorns. to that. Yeah, I, see the, I keep <laughs> I keep seeing the little pig over your shoulder there, and I keep going like I'm gonna bring that. Oh up. yeah, that's I'm gonna my bring that up. Pigicorn. Um, Is that the so, official name now? I saw the I saw the yeah. post. I, I spread it out. <laughs> yep, that's the pigicorn. Okay. Um, so uh, kill the unicorns was kickstarted about four years ago by a French company called Morning. And uh, the, their Kickstarter was extremely successful. It raised a little bit more than $300,000 uh, on slightly fewer than 8,000 backers. Um, uh, Luke Warren brought that game to my attention. He is kind of a licensing agent that works with many publishers around the world trying to get games uh, released into different languages. So when they Kickstarted that game, they like I was not aware of it at the time, but they struggled a little bit with their fulfillment. And then I think their North American distribution arrangements for reasons that are not totally um, transparent to me did not come to fruition. So it was a really popular and well-regarded game that did not have any substantial um, release pattern in the United States. And so I recently did a deal with those folks so that Prolific is now the uh, English American publishing partner for that game okay. with the real benefit that they still had a bunch of English language units of that game floating around. So in the current environment where you can't get anything here from China, no matter how much money you have, the fact that there are thousands of units of this game that are sitting around and ready to be sold is just a, a huge and improbable stroke of luck. Uh, but it's also great that it really it's a game that fits the pattern that Flapjacks and Sasquatches and Witch Slapped and Cultists and Cthulhu have, which is that they are kind of, from a gameplay perspective, they are lightweight, take that games whose themes are funny and accessible sort of to a general audience. Right. So like I almost accidentally stumbled into the perfect game and the perfect time to distribute it here in America. So yeah. we have we have since then I've signed a signed a, a kind of a memo of understanding with the morning folks to also do their next game, which is called Burn. Um they kickstarted the, the box looked the same. When I saw it, I was like, they look like they're the same thing. So I was going to ask about that. 
Uh, so they 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 like this square or this cubic size, which I also think is pretty interesting. Um, they've got different art on them. This is what Burn looks like. This is one of their pre-release ones. Okay. This is a game about a hot sauce contest. Um, it's that. got a really cool mechanic where it's got like a, a sort of a physical twitch-like thing where there are uh, five totems that sit on the table and each one of them has a different action. So you do a reverse auction and then, so you count down 18, 17, 16, 15. The first person who is willing to pay that many dollars in order to buy the ingredients on offer grabs the I want to buy it totem. And that triggers everyone else to grab from amongst the four totems that are left. And each one of those ones that is left also has a different option. So one of them lets you go to the black market. One of them lets you tax the other players, whatever, whatever. But it's, it is another one. Uh, it's a surprisingly good game with a very clever um, theme and sort of marketplace look and gimmick to it. I even hesitate to say gimmick. Uh, it's, it's almost a gimmick, but it's, it's clever. And the game is really fun. I really enjoyed that one the first time I played it. So we've got, uh, we haven't yet figured out how it is possible to ship them to America in the current environment. So there's not like a firm production plan at this right. instant. We just have to believe that at some point it will once again be possible to ship objects across the Pacific Ocean. Well, um, fingers crossed. <laughs> Are there any other games that you think you're just going to solely be just a solely prolific game coming out, or any ideas for that, or or is it stuff you um, can't talk about? No, no, no. I mean, so this one is even further off. But I've signed a license agreement. Uh, for a game that is currently called Portality. My guess is that that is probably not the eventual publication name, but who knows? This is a game that is designed uh, by Maggie and Jordan Klein. They designed uh, Never Bring a Knife, which was an Atlas release that I was the producer of. That one is basically Reservoir Dogs, the card game, where it's kind of a social deduction game that takes place in a gunfight after a, like a, a casino heist that has gone horribly wrong. Anyway, they also did this game called Portality, which is amazing. Uh, it looks phenomenal on the table. So this is essentially a game of alien invaders uh, over Manhattan or whatever huge metro area. So the game board is like a, a city, like a satellite view of a city. It doesn't even have like spaces or hexes or anything like that. The uh, so each player starts out with a bunch of these rings that are basically the punch board rings that are maybe, I don't know, three and a half, four inches across. They're Australian, so presumably they know how many centimeters they are across. I don't know. Right. <laughs> They're about this big. So you put these onto the board, and your initial one is dropped randomly. So your initial placement is a little bit random. But then you place your new ones uh, so that they barely overlap with your last ones. And then you both beam your alien soldiers down into the rings that you control. But the rings that you control are also where you can locate the lasers that you will use to destroy everybody else's alien soldiers. So you wind up with this map where all of these like alien portal rings are all kind of overlapping each other all the way across the board. Um, and it has that same feel that I was talking about before, where it's sort of a take that game, but with an actual set of mechanics that makes a fun game, as opposed to a take that game where like in turn, we poke each other in the eye, which, which like is fun if that's what you want to do. Like there are successful games like that. Lunch Money, you could say many things about Lunch Money. You can't say it's not a successful game. That is just a game where you do violent things in turn to each other until there is only one winner. But that's not at all 
what people like about prolific games right. in my analysis of it for the last couple of years. So Portality also has that feeling. It will be a bigger thing, uh, but I think it's in the same vein. So I'm looking forward to having more time to do some more development on that. But, but we've got a, a publication agreement for that too. I'm hoping that comes out next year. We'll see. These okay. things always take longer than I think to develop. Will Bill and John still be doing stuff with you or for you at all? coming up uh, they said I, I they said that they're willing to like do events and come to conventions and hang out and stuff like that i don't they have not expressed any interest in doing like development or design okay. or anything like that i think that they have some like um 5e projects that they are interested in working on okay um they may have changed their mind about that. that. That is like something that they talked about at one point. So I am yeah. completely guessing as to whether or not that's true. I did get them each to design a card. I don't, these are on the web somewhere. I thought it would be cool as a, uh, as a kind of a transition of ownership thing to like give away a card that featured each one of them. So you I can see those. designing of the prolific games yeah, website. Yeah, yeah. So each one of them had to design their own card. And so then I commissioned art for those and, so those are there are things that folks and I believe those are on up. your on the prolific games website as well at prolific games. Uh, yeah, I think if you if you place an order above a certain amount, there's a coupon code to get those for free, or you can order a set for two bucks or something like that. Have have a look at the site. They're still yeah prolificgames.net for those listening, um, and you have your own personal website jefftidball.com uh, on Facebook jeff.l.com jeff.l.tidball on facebook and at jeff tidball on twitter uh thanks for joining us tonight that's it's it's been an awesome time and hopefully uh we've talked about all kinds of things and maybe get you back and talk about more because the list is a mile long yeah i thank you very much for doing this it's really fun to do this kind of thing i, I like it a lot and maybe when you get to play testing maybe we'll do a live stream you can you can play test it on on the stream and let people worldwide get a get a taste when you're when you're at that point yeah, 100 man, that that reminds me that I totally forgot to talk about what the next Kickstarter is, which is called talk Broken about and Beautiful. That's in January. Oh, yeah. Well, no, so we can, that is going to be on uh, Sovereignty, which is a digital platform, um, is going to have a digital version of that okay. at some point. I don't know if it's available before the Kickstarter is up or not, but that kind of thing is ideal for streaming. So right, maybe right. we do it that. It was right under my my talking about the, the band or album and, broke, and, and video game stuff that I totally, I... Oh, I dropped the ball on that one and I apologize. No, you did yeah. not at all. That's not true at all. I, <laughs> it's, it is to your point that there is all kinds of stuff and you can't talk about it all. Right, right. Well, we'll just definitely have to have you come back and talk about more stuff when, when you and I both have, have time. And uh, we will talk to you whenever that, whenever that day comes around and probably leading up to that. I'll, uh, I have something else for you after off stream to talk to you about as well. So um, for those of you that are listening and or watching, uh, we are going to be doing a giveaway later. I won't be going into details, but you can join us on our Discord and you can find that through our, uh, for, through our Twitch page at twitch.tv slash epic underscore realms. Uh, you can watch this video on Video On Demand for at least a couple months. So uh, if you are listening to it and you want to see us live and chatting, you can come here and watch it live and you can uh, watch the VODs as well. So we appreciate you all for sticking around and we will be answering live stream questions here in just a few minutes. I also wanted to mention coming up, 
uh, in two weeks, we're going to be interviewing Kevin Hearn, a well-known author for the Iron Druid Chronicles, Plague of Giants, and many, many other books. Uh, he's got some funny ones that he he does as well. So he's going to be joining us in a couple of weeks, and I can't wait to chat with him, one of my favorite personal authors as well. We'll be having Owen Casey Stevens two weeks after that on the 15th of November. Uh, he works all kinds of uh, role-playing games as well, so it's going to be fun to talk to him uh, about Starfinder and Green Ronin Publishing and stuff like that. And in December, we're going to be talking with Chuck Dixon. So that's also going to be fun. If you like comic books, he kind of was the man in DC Comics for many, many years. So that's going to be coming up in December. So that's some of the things coming up. So thank you all for listening. And we will see you next time on Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back. And join us again for Epic Realms.